0: Hello there, and welcome to Fire Engineering Blog Talk Radio in this episode of the Professional Volunteer Fire Department. This is the podcast dedicated to our great volunteer fire service and getting all listeners to embrace the message that developing and displaying and maintaining a professional image and reputation is the duty and responsibility of all firefighters, paid and career. And we must recognize that true professionalism is never defined by a paycheck. Tom Merrill here. Thank you so much for listening in. I truly appreciate the fact that you take the time to listen to my podcast, and I remain committed to you to continue to bring you important topics topics of relevance to the volunteer fire service. Great guests, great information. And I continue to work hard to do that for you every single episode. And I'm glad that you're still listening in. And I truly, truly appreciate it and never take it for granted. So I hope you're enjoying as we enter the dog days of summer. I hope you're having a great summer so far. I've certainly been enjoying a great summer, great family time, R&R time. Although it's a little less than in years past because just like I'm Sure, many of you are experiencing in your line of work, whatever it happens to be, um, you're short staffed, just like I am. I work at the fire alarm office. We're a little short staffed, but we're still managing to get some good time off in and enjoying it with the family and also going out and talking about the fire service and doing presentations and webinars and podcasts. And, you know, speaking of podcasts. I always enjoy being on other people's podcasts and taking the opportunity to talk about the volunteer fire service. And I had the opportunity, I was on a newer podcast a couple weeks ago. I think the gentleman started it this year, Dan Retzlaff. He's a firefighter from the state of Wisconsin, and he's got a great new podcast titled The Forward Firefighter. And he invited me on um, to share my idea about the professional volunteer fire department. And I just had a great time and I'm very impressed with the work he's doing. And I encourage Encourage all of you to add his podcast to your listening uh, list. Um, I'm sure if you can find it, I know you can find it on all the popular streaming platforms, or you can just go to the internet browser and type in the forward firefighter, and it'll come come up for you. He's had some great guests from his local state, and as well as from across the country. He's had great topics, so good stuff. I encourage you to check it out. And again, thanks to Dan for inviting me to be on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and just a couple days after. After that, um I was honored to do a webinar for uh, fire engineering in Columbia Southern University. Um, I did my professional development for the volunteer firefighter webinar. And you can still get it if you go onto the fire engineering website and go to the uh, link for their webcast. Um, you'll see it there. You can register and download it and listen at your convenience. It's only about an hour. And uh, it's a very fast paced presentation where I focus on things we can do personally, individually, ourselves, no influences from me. A- outside forces that define professionalism in our hometown volunteer fire department. And one more thing about being out and about, my book's coming out soon. I know I've mentioned it several times on previous podcasts, but we're getting closer. I've said that every podcast for the last year or so, but it is inching ever so closer. It's now being advertised on the fire engineering books and video website that it's coming soon. So I'm Very excited about that. I'm honored to be doing it. It's going to be a 373 or so page book focusing on what it takes to be a professional volunteer firefighter serving in a professional volunteer fire department. It's going to be an in depth discussion on things that we maybe have talked about on the show, as well as a lot of other ideas and things that maybe we haven't gotten to on the show. So I'm just excited to be doing it. And uh, I'd be honored if you get a chance to check it out when it comes out. And I'll keep you posted and when it's going to be released and one more thing about the the fire service there's another report that came out that i think as professionals we want to take the time to read and that's the nfpa came out with their 2022 line of duty death report um the total for 2022 was 90 98 98 brothers and sisters lost their lives or no it was 96 I apologize there's 96 brothers and sisters but that's the highest number since 2013 when 98 firefighters died now one of the reasons there's an increase in the line of duty deaths is uh, they're counting firefighters who passed away within 24 hours of being on duty so that definitely increased the number a little bit but 96 is still pretty high um, and you want to take the time to read these reports and see what information you can glean from it and maybe take Back home, you honor the memory of those sisters and brothers who perished, and maybe you learn some lessons that can help you just be a little better at our job of firefighting Um, of particular importance, two to us out of the 96 firefighters that died, 51 were volunteer. So a large number of volunteer firefighters, 38 were career. There's a mix of some other types of uh, like state and uh, state type and federal land firefighters. But, you know, 51 volunteers out of the 96 who passed away. A lot of information. And if nothing else, when you read these reports, You're saying the names of the people who perished. And by doing that, you're remembering them. And as a true professional, you should want to know how our brothers and sisters died in the line of duty. And maybe some steps you can take to prevent some things like that from happening in your hometown. So check it out. Stay in tune with what's going on in our fire service. So you're probably aware that the focus of our last two podcasts has been on engine company operations, the basics of stretching lines and getting water on the fire in a very timely but also efficient manner. We talked about fires in basements and attics and garages and, of course, the residential so-called bread-and-butter fire. Um And as I said on these episodes, I said, you know, I think it's safe to say that parked in every single firehouse in America is a vehicle that's designed to put water on the fire. It's probably got some hose on it and it's probably designed to, you know, respond to fires. Right. So I think fires are really a big deal. So it makes sense that one of our priorities in the fire service, one of our areas of expertise definitely needs to be getting on getting water on the fire. And it's easier said than done. It definitely gets easier with training. That's why we've had our guest on for two episodes. And we're going to go into part three. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to the first two parts, I encourage you to go back and listen when you have the opportunity. Because my guest and my friend, Jeff Shoup, he he has so much great information and tips and words of wisdom to pass on about engine company operations. So I'm really excited to have him back on here for part three of what I think can easily be considered a engine company manual podcast. Um, and as a reminder to you listeners, Jeff's a retired Cleveland, Ohio firefighter. He served there for about 37 years. And he's also been a division chief in the North Myrtle Beach, uh, South Carolina Fire Department. He's also been one of us. He's been a volunteer firefighter and he's instructed all over the country. He's written, written countless articles, all focusing on, Engine company and fireground operations. He's also featured in the very good Elkhart Brass uh, Brass Tacks and Hard Facts video series, which is dedicated to all things engine work. So, if you're an engine engine guru like I am, and I know so many of you are, and you haven't watched Brass Tacks and Hard Facts, check it out. Just throw it in your search bar and check it out because you'll get a lot of great information. So, I'm excited to have him back on the show. Jeff, welcome back. Good to have you, brother. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Uh, It's a great uh, thing to be back, too. And we've Uh, had some technical issues off and on, but you're loud and clear, and things are working uh, good here. Fingers crossed, right? (laughs) And we got the video going now, too, and uh, Mark Howell wants us to make sure that's working good. Everything's ready to rock and roll, so let's talk engine part three, engine company operations. And if you remember, last month we talked about a letter we got from a brother in Wisconsin he emailed me to discuss our, one of our podcasts, our first podcast about engine company operations and building that culture back home Uh, and uh, concentrating on, you know, getting our people to be on the same page. And he thanked us for putting together the podcast on that. And he said it motivated his department to go out and train and the results paid off within the first month because they had a fire and things went really well. I think they saved a pet, and uh, well, After our part two, he sent me another email. It happened again. He gave me an update. He says they're a small department. They only run a couple hundred runs a year, um, usually just a few fires a year. But now they've had uh, several fires this year. And since they listened to the podcast, or since he listened to our podcast, our brother Brian from, uh, I think it's Wisconsin, the Evansville Fire District, since he listened to the podcast, he went back to his fire company. They've built an engine company culture. They've been training on engine company operations. They had that first successful fire, and they had another successful fire just uh, recently in the last month or so, where they saved another couple family pets, but he says, Jeff, that Listening to our podcast, talking about the engine company culture, it inspired him and his department to go back and train. Isn't that awesome? That's excellent. Yeah, that's excellent.
1: Good. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you to got to believe there are many more firefighters and fire departments out there that want to do that. Mm-hmm and uh that, that's a great thing it's just that you know not everybody's gonna write in and say hey we've listened to you guys and it really sparked interest and in a rebirth of our fire department and we're working on culture and things like that not everybody's gonna write in but you know there's a lot of people out there who want to do that same thing so that's that's good good yeah. to hear good to hear that somebody's
0: gonna you know acknowledge that and don't pass know. the word on. yeah absolutely and what i'd like to tell Our brother uh, Brian is, hey, Brian, you motivate me and you motivate Jeff to continue to go out and preach and talk about this stuff. And uh, it really keeps me going to continue doing these podcasts because it's nice to know that it's making a difference. So I encourage listeners, reach out, talk to us, email us. We'll give our contact info at the end. Let us know how we can help you. Let us know if you have questions. Let us know if you have topics for me for other podcasts. So um, yeah, Yeah. it fires me up no pun intended to keep doing this as well. So thanks to brother Brian. Yep. Uh, Are you ready to get started? I am, but go ahead. So let me ask you,
1: do you mind if I approach a subject right now uh, real quick? We'll just take a few minutes on it. You dive we, into it. You made the point about every fire department across the country, no matter how big or how small you are, no matter if your career combination, full-time, or whatever the case may be, you have to have an engine to be a fire department. And again, that's where I wanted to go with this. Yeah, roll with it. Yeah, so... In the past, we had what was known as triple combination of engines, which meant you had a a pump, a water tank, and you had a hose, okay? Those three things, you know, qualified as an engine, a triple combination engine. So the one thing I wanted to bring up was that if you take a look at today's engines, in so many cases, they've gotten away from that concept of providing an engine company for firefighting. We've got cabinets out the wazoo, you know, high side on both sides. We have, uh, we have to uh, sometimes put ladders in the hose beds of newer apparatus. Where I'm going with it, I'd like to see the American Fire Service as a whole take a step back. And take a look at the engines that they're running. Now, I've heard all kinds of reasons why we had to have these super uh, squad engines or whatever the case may be to carry all these tools because my fire department's not that well staffed and we don't have that many guys. So we have to get everything to the scene now. And to me, times have changed since those statements were first out there. You know, back in the 70s and the 80s and even into the 90s when people were saying that, oh, we just don't have the guys available. We don't have the equipment available to get out there, so we have to put everything on one chassis. Now that we're into Mabus's or we're into automatic response and things like that, now we can get those apparatus from those other departments on an automatic response or mutual aid response. And I hope you you, you see where I'm going with this. Oh, yeah rather than putting everything on one chassis. Hence, the old triple combination apparatus became the quad when they added a complement of ground ladders. Right. Then it became the quint when we added an aerial device. Right. So as they kept adding things, and next thing you knew, what was happening was that the old original fire engine plan, the old triple combination, well, we went with a smaller water tank. And now we have to find a little compartment to put the pump into because we got all these compartments that we have to put all this equipment in. And I don't think that's the case anymore. So that's why I said I'd like to see people step back and say, you know what? Maybe we should go back to that old triple combination plan. Right. You know, when it worked. Keep it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Case in point from a big city perspective. And that's St. Louis. In the 70s, when St. Louis, like all the other uh, urban centers around the country, was losing money, going bankrupt, or whatever the case was, and they said, oh, we're going to do it with a traditional engine and ladder concept in favor of the new Quint concept back then. Mm -hmm. But what have you seen them do in recent years? They're going back to the triple combination and the engine and ladder concept. So so I think, you know, uh, (laughs) fire departments – are really justified to, to look at, you know, hey, you know what, maybe we don't need to put, you know, all these big cabinets and so forth and these high-rise uh, cabs and things like that together. We need to put yeah. fire trucks out there.
0: Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer in keeping things as simple as possible. Yeah. And I know one of the other reasons it's been done, there's a few reasons it's been done, and, um, and, and one other reason is it's been justified due to the cost. They, they feel... When people sometimes do these rescue pumpers and that they're getting two vehicles in one they're getting their heavy rescue equipment as well as their pumper equipment in one vehicle, cutting down on two vehicle purchases. now they only have to purchase one. but with that comes a cost right you're uh you're complicating things a little bit in my opinion now you know me, I am a little vertically challenged, but the higher these hose beds go. You yeah. can be complicating the stretch now and making it more difficult to get a nice stretch going because you got to climb up and pull hose down. And I've seen hose come from so far up. It's if it's somebody coming off that rig, it's really going to do some damage. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, here's the
1: other thing, too. When you, when we started seeing departments go with what the salesmen were saying about, well, let's put the ladder, the ground ladder bed into the hose bed. We'll, create a, we'll design a box that fits into the hose bed. Well, now, wait a minute. Now you're cutting down on the amount of hose that you can carry.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it changes your tactics. It, it changes your tactics. And I I don't want to sound dramatic or anything, but it changes your drama, uh, your, your tactics dramatically when it comes to stretching hose. If you're a pre-connect department that goes on with uh, 150 or 200-foot pre-connects or you know, the pump panel, yeah, I get that. But when you have to make those long stretches and you have limited amounts of hose because you have a new ladder box in your hose bed uh, restricting the amount of hose you carry on uh, your engine, you know, let's see, that's what you get into is things like that. Let's, right. let's see if we can get away from that. Put the ladders on the side of the apparatus once again. Put them in an overhead ladder rack that can come down. I don't care. But, you know, right. the hose
0: bed is for hose, mm-hmm. not for ladders. Right. So, all right. Keep it simple, people. Keep it simple. And you know what you're talking about there is, is, uh, you know, focusing on engine work. And um, you were talking to me earlier about you were on a conference uh, a couple of weeks ago. I think it was in South Dakota doing some good engine company work. And I wanted to start off talking about that. But that segued great because you were talking about building this engine culture. And you talked about two things that I want you to expand on for the listeners. Um, You talked about uh, officership and, um You also talked about building that engine company culture um, back home. Can you expand on that for the listeners a bit? Yeah. And And company concept was the other word you used. Right. Let's start off with uh,
1: the positions on an engine. And you can take this same philosophy and apply it to squads or ladders. Doesn't matter. And that is, when an engine leaves the firehouse, number one, there's three categories of resources. You have your apparatus, you have your equipment, then you have the most important thing is your personnel. So, of those personnel, and we're not going to talk about six or seven or eight guys hanging off the apparatus as it goes down the street. We're going to keep it to three people, which I think is realistic to many departments across the country. That means you have a driver, you have an officer, and you have a firefighter. And Someone's got to be in charge. And that means the person sitting in the right front seat
0: should be the person who's supposed to be there, whether they're a lieutenant or captain in rank. And that officer might not even be an officer. It might just be right in the volunteer ranks. It could be the senior person who might only have a couple of years on.
1: And you hit it right in the head. Trust your senior people first. If your senior free, uh, firefighters don't want that position, but they're good firefighters, they're good pump operators, fine, let them take the, the the wheel, okay? But that's who you should look for first to fill in in the absence of an officer, Right, because you look at your senior people as having time in a job, knowing the operations of the department, knowing the community and things like that, knowing the equipment on the apparatus list. and again, it's not a perfect world when we bring this stuff up, but it's what we should look for look to put out there. Okay. Mm -hmm. So someone's got to be in charge. The other thing is you want someone in that position who's responsible for what that engine does. And that's where things like a department having standard operating procedures or standardized guidelines, whatever you want to call them. I don't care. Right. Something to make sure someone to make sure that engine operates the way it should, especially first do. Now, in the previous episode, we talked about the bread and butter operation, you know, uh, one or two family wood frame structure. Remember, we talked about the garage fire and the attached Mm -hmm. structure. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that person sitting there makes sure that that driver, engineer, apparatus operator, whatever, positions the engine accordingly. And if it's an obvious working fire like that, that person just got to make sure that, okay, we're going to get a line going right now because it's not up for debate about what's happening here. There's the fire. It's roaring out the uh, garage door at you, possibly extending into the house. What do we have to do to make it better? Get water going ASAP, okay? Mm-hmm. And so that's what an officer should be responsible for, seeing that that is done. And when we're coming into the fire area, Okay, you're coming down the street, you see the working fire, you see the column of smoke or whatever, start looking for things like your water supply, weather conditions, uh, whether the wind is blowing into exposures, if anybody's out in the middle of the street screaming at you when you get there and so forth, and that's what that person in that right front seat is supposed to take care of. Not saying that the other firefighters on board, the driver and the firefighter in the back step should not be responsible for their own sign-up because they should be, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's what working
0: as a team and putting your information together is all about. And one thing that I call dysfunctional moments in the volunteer fire service, you're hoping that that senior person or that person in the right seat, even if they're not so senior, that their department has some guidelines or rules regarding training and education so they know their department SOP, SOG's best practices. They're familiar with things they should be doing and looking at because I find one, again, I call these the dysfunctional volunteer fire department moments, and there's no disrespect to anybody, but these are what get us in trouble. When departments don't have minimum training standards or minimum standards for their members that you've got to attend so many training drills a year and the training drills are put on that are, you know, well thought out, well planned executed well and you train to the skill maybe not just to fill a time frame to get your people all focusing on these tasks and to create a unified and a uniform method of operation so now no officers are around but here's a member that's been to these training drills they know their department what their department's expected to do and how it's going to be done they can make those decisions and give those orders now because they've been held to a training standard in their hometown department it's not like oh don't worry about it just go train whenever you get around to it and you maybe haven't been to a drill in three years right. and there's too much of that
1: Going back to where we were last month in South Dakota, we had these guys, uh, by the end of the day, well, let me first start off by saying what we did, we worked with different size hose lines and appliances. So inch and three quarter, two inch, excuse me, two and a half, and then the RAM appliance. RAM, for those of you out there who don't know what RAM is, it's a rapid attack monitor. So we worked with that during the day, and then we ended up the day doing scenarios three people on an apparatus and here was a scenario so we had one of those uh mobile burn buildings to uh work with and it worked great because we plugged in everything about a three member company the different positions how a firefighter along with the pump operator once we get things started uh with the deck gun and we get our water supply hooked up that we can now stretch a two and a half between the pump operator and that firefighter And now when you take a look at, my God, we got over 800 gallons a minute going in with three people, and we got a water supply established. So one of the things that we always want to put out to the people when we're doing these uh, classes is that we break it down, and we don't have a whole bunch of people saying, go do this, and you guys do this. No, 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 we slow it down so everybody can see each segment, first do engine, second-do engine, third-do engine, and we kept it to the small departments, especially the volunteers, so you don't know who you're going to work with from one fire to the next, and they can see, oh, this is how we do it. This is how we get things going and so forth, and it builds the accountability also because you don't have people running all over doing something that's not even productive, but you're working as a team. So that goes back to that company concept.
0: Right. And you know, in addition, Jeff, in addition to that accountability, you're giving them confidence. I bet you they had, I bet you the confidence level in those people that you were working with skyrocketed by the end of your training sessions.
1: What you want to do at the end of every training sessions is recap what you did. Mm -hmm. Because during the whole day, people aren't thinking about it. They're just doing it in a lot of cases. At the end of the day, when you recap, you tell them you did this, and this is why you did this. So, for example, we use uh, static beds whenever we go out, and we do it for a couple of reasons. Number one, we have very good believability, experience, and confidence in the static beds. Number two, whenever we run the static beds, there's always people there to think, Oh, my God, that was so easy. We stretched our hose line. We had a two and a half. We put it in service. Yeah, I said you put it in service at about a minute, a minute to a minute and 15 seconds. You guys did it from a static bed. The other thing is when you have to break a coupling and you have to attach a nozzle, you have to take the coupling around, find the pump operator, see what outlet he wants to use because that's his engine, remember. Now you're building their dexterity. We had young kids at that training uh uh venue who had just gotten their t shirt a week before. You know what I'm talking about when I say t-shirt. Oh yeah. Hadn't even had we had two two kids I remember in particular said, uh no, we haven't had a hose line on our hands yet. We wow. were their basic training. It was greatest I'm the greatest <laughs> thing. Yeah, exactly. So when you when you put that th- uh, training out there like that, where they can do things with their hands, where they can uh, attach the nozzles and they, you, you show them, Okay. Here's how we line them up. And then here's how we do it. You look out, this guy's going to do the work. Okay. And it falls into place for them like that. It's like, yeah. Oh my gosh.
0: You know? Yeah.
1: So it, it it's one of those things that, you know, that's your training and that's got to be repetitive too. Right. So it's,
0: it's, it's a pretty good feeling. yeah. You know, you could get to people. And, uh, yeah, and you, you can know, do help. this in your volunteer oh, yeah. firehouse. Yes. This can yeah. be your training drill. We need to have good training drills and we need to have training standards. Training needs to be regular, like you said, repetitive, regular folks. You can't just train when you feel like it. There's got to be a good program in place. And then we can work on developing this engine company culture that we love to talk about.
1: Yeah. It's something simple for engine operations. Obviously, we are dealing with hose lines. So uh, some meeting night, all you got to do is take two or three or four, depending on how many guys you got attending your training, two or three or four pieces of hose, put them in a U, and have two people hook up the male and female of this one. Same thing over here, same thing over here, and same thing over there, and have them go right down the line. Then what you do, you have one person do it and tell them, show me how you'd hook these two uh, couplings together by yourself out in the street. So they can either try to do it like this, you know, pulling it into their chest, or they can hold the coupling, the male coupling between their feet and take the female coupling and put it on that way. Or one guy steps on the back of the coupling, or uh, one guy, yeah, the one person steps on the back of the coupling, which brings the coupling up like that, the male, and then he starts doing it that way. The point is, give the guy the option so he can do it the best way he can when he's out there in the middle of the night, in the darkness and whatever, Mm -hmm. and he can get the job done, he or
0: she. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: It's just simple stuff like that.
0: It is, it is. And we got to fire our people up and get them to understand that, you know, we can make it fun, but it's going to pay off when that fire hits and you will get that fire. Even if you're in the slowest department in America, the fire will come. I like to quote Chief Lombardo from Buffalo. He always says the longer it's been since your last fire, the closer you are to your next one. (laughs) Yeah, way to go, Mike. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. yeah. So and you also talked about officership at, at this training and and developing that. Can you what, was, what did you mean by that?
1: Well, you know, there should be a chain of command in every fire department. And I'm not telling people or fire departments to get carried away with it, make everybody an officer and give everybody responsibility. But you have to have regular meetings among your officers, whether you're going to do a uh A monthly meeting with your officers or however often you hold your uh, regular training, have a meeting with your officers beforehand. But you got to get everybody on the same page and make everybody understand what's the agenda and then go over things, simple things like the SOPs, the rules and regulations and so forth. And that comes from the top, that kind of leadership Mm -hmm. that comes right from the top. So I, I've, I've been working recently with a, a small volunteer department and they're in need of a lot of things. They need a lot of things, this department. They, they need a new fire station. They need new fire trucks. Uh, I've been talking to them about administrative things like from the officers. And I think in some cases, and again, it's not a perfect world. You know, when we have a uh Uh, like, like what we're doing right now, Tom, you know, we're talking about this stuff talking is one thing, but the reality of it is another thing. Don't you agree?
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So like we said, it starts with a top. And I, I, I feel sorry for the chief who feels like he wants to do the best or he or she wants to do the best for the department and they take it upon themselves personally. No, that's what you have a chain of command for. And it's like in in, in the old, old uh, officer training books and things like that, they would talk about information flows up, but so information can come down.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And that's where, like I said, it starts at the top. Then it goes down through the ranks too. So yeah. that's one of those things about, uh, well, you know. Yeah. You know, uh, you yeah. talked
0: about the meeting yeah, but- and I, I want to throw this out there. And, um, because I'm a big believer in it, I'd like to get your take on a post-fire critique. So you can review things at your meeting, talk about how you want the engine company operation to go. You can go out and train on it. But then when you do have the fire, I think, and I believe it's in pretty much every book I've read about engine company operations and leadership and officership, is you got to have a post-fire critique. And it's the sooner, the better is you can even do a quick one at the tailboard before packing up and going back to the firehouse. Oh. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Oh, understand? No. You, That's necessary. You, you know, understand sometimes people got to get to work and now they're three hours late for picking their child up at child, whatever it is we get. But take five minutes at the scene, even just, hey, hang on. Everyone, what went right? What went wrong? What can we do better? How did our SOPs, SOGs, whatever you call them, how did they All apply right. here? How did they work? And then at a future date, you can do an even better in-depth one back at the firehouse with drawings and pictures and Google Earth and yeah. all that. Oh, my gosh. You talk about building that engine company culture, that firefighting culture, get people operating together on the same page. I Review was a, everything. Right. I was a
1: young firefighter when I saw this one chief officer get everybody together after everything was done. The first thing out of this Deputy's mouth was, "Is everybody okay?" And he got he got everybody's attention, and he had a battalion chiefs here and so, and so forth. Is everybody okay? I thought that was the neatest thing. Yeah, he had everybody's attention. Everybody's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're okay. Okay. Yeah. And this is a major incident. And I was like I said, I was a young kid at the time, and uh, it stuck with me. here sure. And now you start putting, okay, you guys, how was it there? It wasn't there. Okay, what'd you see? What'd you do? And so forth. Got all your stuff. Okay, everybody ready to go? Okay, good. All right, keep this in mind. And that's the way it went. I thought, oh, that was so, so
0: professional. Right. Right there. Right. So, Absolutely. Yeah. How yeah. did our SOPs play here? Here's how we've trained. This is what we normally, but that didn't happen here. Why? What let's talk about it. It's just right. it's go on and on. It's so yeah. important to do that. It is you're yeah. right. It's the hallmark. It's so, the simple. Yeah, it's it's so, so simple. it's so simple.
1: <laughs> and you keep everybody there. So nobody strays, nobody becomes fragmented.
0: No, 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 no. Okay. Mm. Get everybody here. Okay. Everybody okay? Number one. I thought that was, oh, wow. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like I said, even later at the firehouse, on well, drill night, a week later, whatever, put together an even more in-depth right. review of it. But keep people well, focusing on it.
1: Go back to what you just mentioned a minute ago about the officers' meetings. Okay. Right. okay. You have a major incident. You got a lot of guys employed there. You know who your officers were at that incident. Bring them in for a critique, a caucus, whatever, before mm-hmm. your next meeting and say, look, here's what we want to review. OK, everybody, everybody remember the floor layout or the how the building was put together. Where was the fire when we arrived and what were the situations and how was the street street laid out and stuff like that? So what yeah. can we do better
0: next time? Yeah. And then whatever what did, you find or, out. or reinforce what you did, what that went right. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. and then pass that on to the troops. Pass that information
1: on to the troops too. That's one of the things about officership. Okay, I remember that also. Praise in public, uh,
0: and then was a critique in private. Private, yeah, yeah. So. That's another. It's such a simple concept, and it's hard for people. To Isn't it, on. though? Yeah. <laughs> and I think we can all think of the officer that yelled yeah. at somebody in front of everyone else and right. yada, 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 right? So, oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, so one of the things we wanted to talk about, Jeff, and we talked about attic fires. We talked about garage fires and basement fires and bread and butter fires. I've had some people email me and you and I mentioned it at the end of last show. They're looking forward to this discussion. Let's talk about that commercial building fire. Pretty much every fire district probably has at least one commercial building in it. And we get ourselves in trouble a lot with these types of fires. One stat I saw is the line of duty death ratio for firefighters at commercial building fires far exceeds the line of duty death ratio at bread and butter fires. And I think sometimes it's because we throw residential fire tactics at commercial building fires. So I'd like to pick your brain for a little bit and talk about commercial building fires, maybe some do's and don'ts and mistakes we've made and things we can train on. So the platform is yours. What do you got to say about that type of fire? Tom, you're right on.
1: (laughs) You Might as well run
0: with it. (laughs) Yeah. And that is is really, uh,
1: I think... uh, a sin of the fire service. We get used to fighting fires in one type of structure. When we get that commercial building, it's a different animal altogether. You're talking bigger buildings, and whether they're one story, two story, three, four, or five, whether they're for uh, industrial use or manufacturing. Uh, The type of construction, is it uh, heavy timber or is it non-combustible? Is it uh, whatever? All these things make it different. Right. Going back to commercial buildings, okay? This is the whole thing about that officer sitting in the right front seat, knowing the district, and is this commercial building sprinklered? Well, if you pull up and you got smoke showing and you have a sprinkler system on site, that first engine should be getting ready to supply that system. And that's the whole thing about that first engine doing that to prevent that fire from spreading throughout the rest of the building. And that's that's, that's a critical thing right there. Because if, if one of the first engines to arrive does not supply a sprinkler system in a commercial building that has a wide open floor area, maybe a lot of combustible or flammable stock, then we're talking about losing the situation quickly here Because of the tactics that we're
0: employing. Right. Right. And how about this? Hopefully they know there's a sprinkler system. Hopefully the communication center can pass that information on or the department has a really good, robust pre-planned program and they know there's a fire department connection. Hey, here's an idea. The next automatic alarm you get at one of your buildings, talk about it with the crew. Is there a fire department connection here? Oh, there is. What's the SOP, SOG for this fire department connection? How do we hook up? Sometimes they have those Knox caps on. Do people know how to get the Knox cap off? There's so many driver, what would you start the pressure out at for something like this? Oh my gosh, you get the oh, idea. I know. Right, exactly. And then see, that's again, that starts at the top. Did the chief train his
1: assistant or deputies or uh, uh, whatever ranks they are <laughs> right. to get that information down through the ranks? And so when you do get those, by the way, you know, if you've got Knox caps, do you have the uh, the keys in the apparatus? Right. That, you know, the guys know where they're at. Right. Where is it? You know, how does it work?
0: I should the, the- <laughs> scratch their head. <laughs> Right.
1: Is it in the glove box or is it in the <laughs> right. used to, the old engines or the old apparatus would have a piece of wood with a whole bunch of key hooks on it and all sorts of right. keys and things like right. that.
0: And you mm-hmm. look up there, they go, like, oh, boy, which one is it? <laughs> you know, I wanted to go back real quick to talk about preplans because so many people are like, ho, hum and yawn when it comes to the subject of preplans. Matter of fact, I took a class, the late Bob Callahan, who uh, taught a class at FDIC on bo- big box fires. He had a great line for it. We were talking about the engine company culture and he called it a pre-plan culture. You know, you've you've got to plan ahead of time at least some basic information about these types of buildings. And uh, just back in June, I was in a class conducted by the great John Norman mm. regarding commercial building fires and the subject of pre-plans came up. And he reiterated a story that when he was a young officer and he went out and did a pre-plan, and put it in the company CAD, well, in the recent past, there was a a fire in one of the buildings that he did the pre-plan for. And his son was at that fire and pulled the pre-plan up. So he says, you know what? That pre-plan you do today that you yawn about or think is no big deal could save the life of a firefighter down the road. And in this case, it could save his own son's life. So I thought that was an incredible story. That's I'll never forget thing. that story. Yeah. Yeah. So don't that's, discount that's... the importance of building pre plans, people. Right. Right. Another thing
1: about pre plans, they should not be made just one time and then put in the binder and or in the CAD system and forgotten about. Exactly. Yeah. Buildings will go through changes. Buildings are like people, they grow old over time. They get remodeled. They get new walls added or taken out. They change occupancies, which means fire load changes. Everything can, can, uh, can yeah. be different. But, right. but yeah, when it comes to pre-plans helping us, yeah,
0: definitely. And here's an idea too. Why don't you train on your pre-plan? That's a drill topic all in its own. Go to that store in your town or that right. box store, commercial building, what a hardware store, what, and go through your pre-plan. You can walk through it, build the muscle memory, and then even go in and take a walk around and see what you're dealing with. But. Figure out where you're going to be parking rigs. Figure out where that fire department connection is. If there isn't a fire department, you know, there's so much to cover. There's a drill topic all on its own.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> what would and you know you can again holding simple question and answer period right on the parking lot there. Yeah. You know, just uh, you know, go up to your young people. Hey, you know, we you know what hose we're going to use here to hook up to that uh, Siamese, and just simple simple yeah. drills. I think we got to get that that brings up something else and that is you're not looking to find fault with someone no you know and I think a lot of people that's going back to the pr- critique also a lot of guys used to hate a critique why what I gonna do it try to find something wrong that we did no just the opposite we're gonna try to find out how well we did things right that's what we're looking for so when you go out and you do the pre-planned walkthrough or whatever You know, just do a simple question and answer and see how things go.
0: Yeah. And I talked about this on some of my other podcasts. I wrote an article called the what if drill, which is basically you're at an automatic alarm call or any call for that matter could be a medical call. The calls over gather the crew together for five minutes. Hey, I know this was only a false alarm due to burnt food or a malfunction or the medical call. The patient's been taken to the hospital. But hang on a sec. What if this was a fire? What if there was smoke out of that window? What would we do? What are our SOP, SOGs here? Where's the hydrant? What's the building pre plan? What's right. the construction? Blah, blah. You could go on and on. And right. it builds interest. Right. It engages your members and builds a little bit of interest. Okay. So this
1: conversation, what we're having right now, leads to many other things. And I'll give you an example. One night, we, we had a building in the old area that I worked many years ago. Every once in a while, not regularly, but every once in a while, we'd get an automatic alarm for this building, okay? It was like, oh, God, something like, I can't imagine. It was some fraternal group that owned the building. So they had a big auditorium space, and and then they had offices off to the side and, and so forth, had a very high ceiling. And... Wouldn't you know one of these times we get an automatic alarm? We're not the first new engine, by the way. Okay. There's going to be an engine, a ladder we know that's going to respond in there ahead of us. But we were second new engine. And we get to the scene and it's in an old neighborhood with all the big trees that help keep things even darker. You know, street lights couldn't even penetrate, you know, <laughs> all the overgrown trees, things like that. When we get up there and everything's real quiet, all of a sudden somebody says, it's a working fire, and we got this place. No, Damn. can't be. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that orange stuff wasn't the sodium lights that <laughs> <It> was bleeding <laughs> through the trees. Yeah. Well, yeah. we get a line in there, and we get the fire knocked down, you know, after some uh, work. Up in the ceiling were those newer type of vent tubes, okay? The ceiling started to collapse in some areas. The old suspend, oh, not old, it's old building, new suspended ceilings, when they gave way those uh, vent tubes with all the wire, you know, that's what they're made out of. Right. Started falling on guys and started getting them tangled up. And that right there became an issue about you make sure you got the fire out, make sure you got things under control, make sure you got you guys accountable and things like that. And again, we had, like I said, we had the fire knocked down at that point, but the smoke was still, you know, pretty good at that yeah. point. And now there, here's these uh, vent tubes coming down, and guys are, you know, now how do you get out of that real quick? How many guys, if they question what kind of tools you carry in your pockets? And I'm not trying to make this a personnel matter, but it is, you know? Right. And that whole thing about, okay, stay with your hose line because that's your lifeline also. Yeah. So, but if you're tangled up, how do we release ourselves quickly? So, that's,
0: yeah. you know, so right there's a big hazard with commercial buildings, right? For sure. Yes. So, yeah. you know, you brought up an interesting point. Let's say you got a commercial building alarm and you pull up and there's smoke. Um, and I, I don't have a ton of experience in this matter. All I can rely on is training that I and that I conducted or been involved in or training. I, the things I've read about or classes I've been in. Um, if there's a smoke condition in the back of the store, before you stretch the line all the way in the back of the store, we should be aware of what's above us, correct? Above and below. If it's an old mom and pop, you might have a problem
1: where you have a fire in the basement but the only way down there is through a trap door that's in the back.
0: Yeah.
1: And if there is a fide working fire in that basement, where is its location? So that might be where, you know, if you have a heavy heat condition, heavy smoke condition, you might want to find another way in
0: mm-hmm.
1: to get to that, uh, uh, basement stair, if that's it, right. if it's, Ordinary construction, uh, you might have fire up in the cockloft space. If it's a one-story place, you know, it's got a cockloft, a Mm -hmm. a
0: flat roof. And that's another problem. So that's wide open front to rear. Then if it's a modern-type supermarket or box store with false ceiling after false ceiling, that could be a problem, too. So I was always taught be popping ceiling tiles as you go forward. To know what's above you and take in a long enough hook, right? Well, absolutely. And how do you get an idea
1: if it's a one-story flat roof? Take a look at where the tops of the windows are, your showroom windows, as you uh, arrive, and figure a couple of feet above that begins the cockloft. So how? Much hook do you need to get up into that?
0: Right, so six foot hook isn't going to do the job for you. I'll tell you that. I think I took a note in Norman's class: or a ten foot hook minimum for those stores. Yeah, don't be afraid to take a twelve foot. (laughs) Don't rely on short. Okay,
1: though these types of fires that are stores and occupancies that we're talking about right now,
0: do you think inch and three quarter is going to be enough? I personally don't. My department's Procedure is two and a half for commercial okay. building fires.
1: Okay, go on. And if you worked a two and a half in a smoky condition and trying <laughs> to do a one eighty with it and go down the stairs, is are gonna. Yeah,
0: I think we're looking at it more that you're going to be standing in one position and yeah, and knocking it down with reach penetration and you know take advantage of that two hundred fifty gallon a minute flow and getting a good reach and penetration. Yeah.
1: That's where, you know, my group, the guys who I do stuff with that's strategic fire training, we're big into the two-inch line. Two-inch line, inch-and-a-half couplings, the one and 116th inch tip if you're going solid bore. If you want to use a fog nozzle, no problem. As long as it's a 50 PSI fog nozzle, that can throw 250 gallons a minute. That's fine. We're looking at gallons per minute, but now you have a hose line that's a lot lighter in weight than the two-and-a-half. And And Number two has mobility, and number three, you can manipulate it a heck of a lot easier,
0: and it's got that good flow. Yeah, I've been reading about that, and with the advances in hose technology today, right? Friction losses. Oh, yeah. Not an issue like it was, and uh, it's come a long Uh, way, hasn't it? Right.
1: Yeah, it's a low-pressure, high-volume system.
0: That we preach and push, push.
1: So, but yeah, getting a line to the, uh, in in a commercial store like that, you know, we call them mom and pop stores. You know, you might have a wood floor that's been layered with linoleum after layer after linoleum and so forth over the years. Uh, That's, you know, a tough thing. And if you have to get down on your knees because of the heat condition, you got a real bad condition right now. You know, if it's burning you through your knees, you know, you, you're you not going to commit the guys deep into a building like that
0: because you've got other uh, issues to deal with, so forth. So, yeah. and whether you're using a two inch or two and a half, you got to get out and train with it, though, right? You know who trained me on the two and a half? Well, first and foremost, my first FDIC it was Andy Fredericks. But you know who did it at my second FDIC? A guy named Jeff Shoup. How about that? <laughs> And here thank I am, you. little Tom thank Merrill, you. six foot whatever, Jeff. And come on, here's how you do it. I'll never forget that. Oh, I appreciate that. What are some I, of the tips you it. like to pass on with those lines? Just obviously get out and train with it. But um, they're, they're great lines when you use them correctly. Make sure you're pumping out a low pressure. You know, Yeah, I think we've become, in the fire service, a one-pressure-fits-all mentality. And if we get a pump operator, an engine chauffeur, whatever you call it, that maybe doesn't know fog nozzle versus straight stream and low pressure, all that, they just are so used to throttling everything up to 150 and sitting back and, you know, wondering why things aren't going so well.
1: (laughs) Well, that's it. You know, you got a guy who's, next thing you know, his feet are off the ground. He's trying to hold on to this hose line. And, it, and now it's becoming a dangerous tool, because if that nozzle gets out of that person's hands and it starts to flail at that pressure, somebody's yeah. going to get hurt, you know, pretty bad. So I think, and uh, yeah, well, I believe you got to get people in there. You got to have someone show you. Because I know when you have a lot of people who say, no, 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 we run it at 170, and that's it. It works fine, okay? That's all we need to know. 170, my God, we're talking low pressure. What I wanted to tell you was that when, uh, like what we did out in South Dakota, and it's everywhere else we've been before that, we got a deck gun going. We got a a two-and-a-half-inch hand line going. We have a RAM appliance going. And then what we'll sometimes do is that we'll break it down, take the two-and-a-half and and put an inch and three-quarter on the end of it, 100 feet of that, once again, solid bore or low-pressure fog nozzle. Very rarely do we see the pump pressure get to 110 PSI because we're pushing so much water out of this engine. People have never seen their engines do that before, but this is the whole thing about the low-pressure, high-volume system. You got water going through a deck gun, through a ramp, through a a two-and-a-half. Do the math, people, and see what it takes so where you have people who can hold that two-and-a-half because it's not being overpumped, And that's the thing. That's a safety feature also. So you're pumping a two-and-a-half, getting big volume out of it. you got a ram appliance going. It's well within its operating pressure, safe operating pressure. Then you got a deck gun going on to put the engine. Right. Speaking of which, by the way, that three-member engine – that's where the officer of the engine should be. If you've got a deck gun operation going and you are initially going after it with a deck gun, you put the officer up top. You know why? Why? He's got the best of what's going on. Uh-huh. So when the supply of water has been established, now that firefighter and that pump operator, he can tell them, hey, guys, take the two and a half and stretch it down there. It's probably going to take you about three or four lengths to do it, but get the two and a half down there. And then we train the people how to manipulate the two-and-a-half. Well, there's a couple of ways you can do it with one firefighter because the pump operator will go back to the pump panel, right? Right. That firefighter and that two-and-a-half by themselves can either sit on the hose line or put a Keenan hose loop in it. It's just very simple stuff like that, you know? And it's not going to go anywhere because it's going to be pumped at the same pressure, 200 feet at two-and-a-half, with a solid bore nozzle, is about the same pressure as what you're supposed to
0: have coming out of that deck gun on top of the engine. Wow 80, 80 psi. What did you call the loop? You have a name for it? The Keenan hose loop. Keenan. I've never heard that before.
1: It's like everything in the fire service. It's got an Irish name behind
0: it. You got Callahan <laughs> Gates. <laughs> who was Keenan? Do we know who Keenan was? <laughs> How about Halligan? The right. Halligan
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. So. I no, never... that's what it was. It was something that was uh, given to the fire service by somebody, probably obviously the name of Keenan. put a loop in the hose and sat on it, right. bring the hose so the nozzle and that section of hose behind the nozzle is underneath the hose, and you can sit on it.
0: Right.
1: Or what we're seeing now, because it's a low-pressure system, just keep your hose line straight and then sit on top
0: of it. Right. Just have the firefighter sit on top of yeah, it, and it's well, that I've... simple right? If you have a straight line, right? One of your goals is to always try and have the line straight behind you. Um, and if it's on the ground, that friction itself helps absorb the back pressure, doesn't yes, it? Yes,
1: it does. Yes, it yeah. does. Yeah. yeah.
0: And yeah. you could take it from me and listeners five foot two here, 145 <laughs> pounds soaking wet. I can do it if done right. And I, I got the confidence and the training and the yeah. competency at engine company ops at FDIC years ago, but I can handle the two and a half by myself. I don't want to yeah. by myself, but if oh, worse right. comes to worse, I can stand in one position and hold that. It's all about getting out and training with it and gaining the confidence in doing that.
1: How does all this, how does all this fit into what we were talking about with the three member company going into a commercial structure that's heavily involved? You get your water. Well, you, it depends on where your water supply is located. Okay. But if you got a hydrant within a, couple hundred feet, that engine can go right in. And again, what we said the officer should do is have that engine positioned properly. Okay, we're going into a deck gun operation, guys. Let's put the deck gun right about here. So when you stop the engine, you want that deck gun to start working the fire to hopefully knock it down as best it can, or at least stop it from getting to another part of the building if that's what you got to do. But the thing is, you can do a forward lay on the way in. So that firefighter is catching the hydrant, and the engine's going, and the officer and the driver set it up. They operate off the water tank. That firefighter at the hydrant, he's already hooking up that hydrant while that engine is resp- we're continuing its drive mm-hmm. to its uh, point of operation. So that, point, uh, that driver then breaks the supply line, hooks it into his intake, and we have so many cases where we'd never run out of water. Yeah. We never do. Right. We pump it at the right pressure. We tell people you pump it at 80 PSI. Okay. If you got a 750 gallon tank figure that's almost a minute and a half of fire tech continued through your master stream. Yeah. And it gives you time to get that supply line established. Yeah. Yeah. The plan is. So now we got our water supply established. Now that firefighter comes up to the engine and the officer, once again, at his location says, Hey, get it two and a half and stretch it over here. So now you can even fortify your attack.
0: So, yeah, it, it,
1: it, it, it works so well, you know,
0: it's, yeah. it's almost one of those things. Move your mic up. Your mic dropped a little. There you go. It's, it's one of those things where it's so simple, Yeah. You know, and then when you
1: see it happen, it's like we don't need any more guys. I hate to say it like that because everybody's concerned about
0: manpower. But the three people properly trained are able to do that. And and remember, remember one thing, if you're throwing all that water into the building, it weighs a lot. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There's an overhaul tip right there, chiefs and, you know, uh, incident commanders, be aware of how much water you put in that building because it's adding a lot of weight. It's getting soaked into the structural members and the walls. And, you know, there's, this is something to be aware of. You know what else is we talk a lot about those deck gun monitors and things like that. And one thing that I try to remember when we use them is in a lot of cases they have stacked tips and it's amazing how many times people don't think to remove one or two of the smaller tips to get more volume out of that deck gun have you seen that oh yeah sure
1: the smallest tip is using and yet you look at the residual on and the pump panel plenty of water to, available <laughs> they, got, they got 60 psi on the residual. It's like yeah right. you know right. you could go a little bit bigger if you want great right. fire calls for it
0: so let's so, say we got a volunteer department listening in on this and they want to do an engine company drill focusing on the commercial building fire what what are some of the pointers that we can give them i know we might have mentioned a few already but let's review that real quick i think i like what you said about knowing ahead of time as you pull in you know what are you going to do and obviously you could have a fire that you see or it could be a smoke condition or it could be a, a ringing alarm but you should know ahead of time what you're doing in those scenarios so how do we prepare for that and train for that
1: well, as we were talked about earlier, it's almost like a pre planned kind of thing. Find that building in your neighborhood and have a training night when you take the apparatus out there, take all your firefighters out there, and just give yourself a scenario to work with. So heavy fire. you know, we got a four story uh, four story reinforced concrete, an old type of industrial building, okay? It's been vacant for years or whatever. I don't care, whatever scenario you want to give. And you got heavy fire in the first or second floor. All right. Take a look at things like your water system. If it's in an old neighborhood that uh, has old water lines, then your water system might be inadequate to provide the fire flow that you'd need for heavy fire involvement in that building. So that's where the first engine, what would you do with it? Second engine. Remember, what's the second engine supposed to be responsible for at the scene of a fire? Anyhow, water
0: supply and then to back up that first engine to uh, make sure that they're able to do their their job. And your department hopefully has regular training drills and you hold people accountable to attend training drills so they know that that's in their mind. Oh, we're second due. This is our responsibility.
1: So if you had that scenario, the old building, the old water system. Next is exposures. You know, is it an old industrial neighborhood where you have the big, remember the old big factories and then across the street with a bunch of two and a half story frame houses. Buffalo's yeah. loaded with that. All your older Cleveland cities. Are like, is too, oh right? yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. And so there you go. You got to think about, you know, we got a big fire. We got it's, uh, a, a concern about our water supply. Uh, We've got a combustible wood frame neighborhood right across the street, 40 feet away. And what are we going to do to get water in there? Well, see, that's where your other engines and your people have to be, you know, on their toes. They might have to relay water into a situation like that. So what you can do for a drill, go in some night, set up an engine close to the building. And if you can throw the deck gun, flow it down the street, have a second engine come in, drop a supply line and have it go down the street, however many feet away your hydrant is, you know, 500, 600, whatever, and have them relay into that engine. See how good your uh, capabilities for relaying water are and how long it takes. That's the other thing. you know. In the past, you, know, you had fire departments that were, oh, we got to put this on. We got to put that on. We got to think about this. We got to that. And then they get down there. And they get down to the hydrant where they're going to use to supply the s- supply engine with. And they want to put all these hose loads on it. This is, this is the beauty about LDH and short sections of LDH. If you can get your engine right into the hydrant, a 25 or 50 foot section of LDH, number one, minimal friction loss. Number two, the diameter of that hose will take all that water. You know, I, I think one of the things that kind of uh, kind of uh, was misunderstood was the tapping of a hydrant. Are you familiar with that?
0: No. Mm.
1: Okay. Let's, for example, say a hydrant is capable of 1,200 gallons a minute. Okay. In my department, my old department, we did hydrants twice a year, spring and fall. We floated our hydrants. You know, we made sure that we knew what was in them. Being in an old city, we knew where the good water was. We knew where the bad water was. Or they, we still knew. Yeah. <laughs> okay. When I was on the job. And the idea of tapping a hydrant to some people was that we're going to hook a whole bunch of hose lines on that is hydrant. We're going to get more water out of it than what we normally would get out of it. If a hydrant in your municipal water system is capable of providing 1,200 gallons a minute through that hydrant, I don't see where the logic is, and I know someone's going to probably challenge it or whatever, but hooking a whole bunch of hose lines doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get 1,400 gallons a minute out of it, or 2,000 gallons a minute, like some people have said, oh, yeah, we're going to get a whole bunch. We can supply this, 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 and this. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily it. You know, your Your hose lines can bring so much into the engine from the hydrant, but your hydrant does not manufacture water. It only supplies what it can.
0: But it's gonna, right. Exactly. Right. So. Yeah. yeah.
1: So Anyway, see what your engine can do about relaying water in, you know? So remember, we're talking an old old town scenario here. Okay? Right. Now, yeah. if you're in a municipal area, well, a newer suburb where they got eight, 10 and 12 inch mains all over the place, <laughs> you've got plenty of water right you know especially when they're newer but no, that's uh that's not the way it is for everybody
0: so yeah yeah and i think when you're when you're drilling for these commercial building fires one thing to keep in mind is um you probably have the first five minutes to to make a difference because, um, I think John Norman mentioned it. If, if you're, if, if it's out of control after five to 10 minutes, you're going to be there for a while. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. uh, so yeah. just, just uh, so train and be prepared and, you know, build that mindset too, that, uh, right. that this, this could happen and and have your crews ready with how yeah. you're going to operate on the fire ground at a commercial building. Fire. Right
1: and maintain as we said before I know we're repeating ourselves here but that company concept remember engines are focusing on water whether you're first second third or whatever uh in response order you're an engine your job is water first
0: yeah okay one right. thing i wanted to ask um cuz I've, I've i've read about this and i've seen it done and i wanted to just const, uh, hit on that real quick tonight is when you go from a defense an offensive to a defensive operation and and i'm sure you've been involved where crews are still inside when ladder towers open up or deck guns open up on crews inside so i think it's good to talk about that as a a training point that if we're an incident commander and we go defensive and start employing defensive strategy with deck guns and ladder towers we better make sure everybody's out of that building correct Absolutely. Mm. Uh,
1: there's got to be a way to uh, get everybody to withdraw. And when you're going defensive, is it because you're realizing the fire is being lost, and you've got time to get everybody out with their equipment and hose lines, or is it that you had maybe a collapse somewhere in the building, and now you have to get guys out of this fire quickly, and then you got to provide it—you know—the heavy streams. Maybe even to protect them. Yeah. So these are these are the things. These are tough decisions. But see, that's the whole thing about having number one company concept. So when you do have to do a a what they used to call a tactical withdrawal, that where everybody goes outside, we have a rally point. That way, engine one. Okay, the the uh, incident commander or whoever's designated. Goes to engine one, you got your people. Engine two, got your people. Three, and going down the line. You know, you've got to have some kind of uh, organization so you can, you know, account for people. It's, it's, you know, it's a very, very tough situation, especially when you had something like that. Maybe the fire flashes over, and and now you got to start hitting it with the heavy stuff, and guys are still in there, and you don't know where they are, they're at. That yeah. maybe trapped, they're hanging out the backside or whatever. So
0: okay. yeah, yeah. I think uh, when you sit down and plan these drills for commercial building specifically, you just got to be honest with yourself. What's the capability of your department? You know, th- you might be set up to handle that 2,000 or 2,500 square foot house because that's the majority of calls you get. But I think in the back of our mind, we better think about what we're going to do for that commercial building that's in our district or in a neighboring district.
1: It's a different animal altogether. Yeah. it really is. Yeah, yeah. Tell you another building. I don't. I don't know if you want to talk about it now, but that's the uh, apartment buildings. The newer apartment buildings too.
0: Yeah, the whole other gamut. Go ahead. Three, three,
1: and four, and maybe in some cases five stories of wood framing now. Becoming very a lot of wood framing. We see them all over our area. Yes. Plenty of void spaces. You know, it's like as time has gone on and we looked at the older buildings, you know, balloon frame construction. Oh, God, that's wood frame and that's balloon and so forth. This is platform. This is better. No, it's not necessarily better because in the construction process, when you have the framing going in, you may have platform that looks like it's fire resistive or so forth. But what is going to happen, the tradesmen are going to come in there. They're going to make holes for the plumbing. you are going to make holes for the ductwork and things like that. Are going to happen for other things. Fire like is going to find its way. It's going to travel throughout those buildings too. So, so if you're talking to a four or five story building, might have sprinklers. Do you have sprinklers in the void spaces,
0: or are they just in the right. public
1: hallways and places like that?
0: Right. So. Yeah. A lot of them are set way back too. Oh She's, yeah, these apartment buildings that are set way back—it's a whole other thing to think about. How are you going to get lines back there if you can't get apparatus back there?
1: <laughs> That's a good drill too. <laughs> How far do you stretch before you need to hook that hose line up to the next size
0: bigger? What's Jeff Sheets' so- rule on that? Uh,
1: in the, I remember Harold Richmond who wrote. He wrote two books. One was engine operations one was ladder or truck operations. The old blue NFPA books. He did a great job. They were old back then, by the way. However, once again, like the old guys who gave us all this stuff, the principles still apply. So when it comes to inch and three quarter, I don't think you should stretch more than 300 feet of inch and three quarter. And then having it backed up, some departments use a two and a half. They use a two and a half with a reducer down the inch and... Inch and a half threads, so they can continue on with the inch and three quarter. Uh, you know, I don't know. Some departments are now using two inch. They go from inch and three quarter to two inch, and then stretch maybe two hundred fifty feet of two inch behind that. So if you got three hundred and you got two fifty, well, you got you get yourself a pretty long stretch. But without a doubt, the king of hose lines is the two and a half. We can stretch that from here all the way to cleveland <laughs> to where, from where you're at right you still have water coming out the other end of it that's right. one of the interesting things about the two and a half and its capabilities but so, it's heavy and remember it's 106 pounds of water weight in a 50 foot length of two and a half
0: right right so i don't know So hey how about this get out and train on it see yeah, what works exactly. for you right right right, right. right. You know, you talk about engine company culture, and I thought of something earlier that I wanted to say. You want to see if a fire company has a good engine culture. When you're in there talking to them in the apparatus bay or standing by the side of the pumper, just ask them, what do your nozzles flow? What what, what kind of nozzles do you have and what are they flowing for you? Or what are you pumping them at? If you get the standard, oh, 150 for everything, then I might question their engine culture. (laughs) (laughs) But you should know your nozzles, right? Get out there and test your nozzles and know what they are flowing. You might think they're flowing 150 to 180 gallons a minute, but have you tested? Have you pedo-gaged them? Don't just always rely on the flow meter either, right? I like the, I'm old school. I like the old pedo-gauge,
1: but. (laughs) Let me me throw out a a real-life example from my old department. So this is going back in the 2000s, but 2007, I was charged with putting all engines on all shifts, including the the battalion chiefs in the field, through a back to basics engine class.
0: I love it, back and, to the basics. Love it.
1: Yep. Yeah. And boy, did it prove out. So we had engine three quarter, two inch, and two and a half on the engines, and I was flowing. Remember, back in the 80s, back back in the 70s. When we started seeing engine three-quarter come on the scene, it was like, oh, wow, this is really something. We're going to get more water. And then they paired it up with an automatic nozzle. The manufacturers of the automatic nozzle says we can get anywhere from 50 to 350 gallons a minute out of this nozzle. Look here. You see you got a spring in here that does this. It opens up. You know, We can get more water. Okay. Late 70s, early 80s is when we started seeing a lot more use of two inch hose, two inch hose, inch and a half couplings. Great idea. But the problem was the rubber lining. Okay. The rubber lined hoses, the, when I was doing this flowing with our department and put everybody through back to basics engines, we found out consistently the two inch hose was flowing less than the inch and three quarter through equal length hose lines. And I was like, what the heck's going on here? Well, it it stood to reason, you know, you pump for one size hose line with uh, they were both automatic nozzles, but one was by a different manufacturer. Another one was obviously another manufacturer. Maintenance is a huge feature with any automatic nozzle. In fact, for sure. any nozzle, you've got to maintain it. Even even a solid board. People say, oh, Christ, it's maintenance-free and things like that. No, you got to check your ball valve every once in a while, okay? Because we've had the, the bail break right off from whatever reason, okay? So, you know, just, just check your equipment and just stay with it that way, right? But going back to this, so we had two different automatic nozzles, And yet the two inch was flowing less than the inch and three quarter. And what I wrote was that let's get rid of the two inch. It's a little bit heavier, a little bit bulkier. The bend radius in the two inch hose back then, the bend radius. Okay. You see that hose was getting pulled in as a second line because you had a limited amount of inch and three quarter, a limited amount of two inch. And then we had the two and a half. So anytime a second line was pulled into a structure, you had the two inch hose because guys said, "Eh, it's just a quarter inch difference, you know, diameter wise. And it's had the inch and a half couplings, same as the inch and three quarter. And yet the water was less, the volume was less than the inch and three quarter. Time goes on. Okay. Now we have two inch hose still with inch and a half couplings, still a great idea to stay it like that. Keep it simple. Keep it slim also. But the newer polymer synthetic impregnated linings allow that water to go through that two inch. And it's like, oh, my God, this is what we've been waiting for. So you should cap out your inch and three quarter. You know, 185. I like the 15 You know, if back then we said we need more water for our firefighting inside, 15 sixteenths is the way to go, All right. okay? When it comes to the two-inch, you've got anywhere from 240 to 260 gallons a minute that can flow through that two-inch line, and again, it's a 50 PSI nozzle, whether you got solid bore or fog nozzle, okay? And the reaction pressure? Oh, please, I don't want to hear this about reaction pressure. Okay, why would it, why would somebody tell somebody you can go with a smaller size than the inch and three quarter? You know, the inch and three quarter hose. Go the next size down. You can over pump it though if you want more water. Well, wait a minute. Hold on. You're you're not making sense here. You're telling me you're kind of trying to avoid reaction force from the 15th, 16th, but then you're going to tell a guy to go with a seven eight,
0: but he can over pump I was, it. I wanted to ask you about that. I was wondering if you've done any work with the seven eight tip on the inch and three quarter line. Cause I, I've read about it. I've seen where one of the selling features people use is what you just said. You can un- under pump it or you can over pump it. Don't worry so much about 50 PSI. It doesn't matter if you pump it 40 or 60. What are your thoughts on this, uh, the, the seven eighths, which seems to be taking some areas of the country by storm. You just took John's class,
1: right? John Norman's class. Yes, sir. And wasn't he the gentleman who wrote it's gallons per minute that puts the fire out? Go in with heavy force. Go in with overwhelming force. And that's the point. We made these changes to give firefighters more water doesn't matter what kind of a fire department you're on. It's telling your firefighters that we're giving you this water. Now, here's how you're going to control it. You know, here's your nozzle mechanics. Here's the proper pressures and so forth. So you can do the job. You take as much water into a fire with you as you can. It's just that simple. Okay. So uh, what we did once down in South Carolina, me and one of the guys, doing an engine class down there and engine three-quarter hose, brand new hose for this department. Good department, you know, great guys. They had a cheat sheet in the cab of all the apparatus. And their cheat sheet was made up by someone who says, if you pump it at 50, this is what you should expect. But if you pump it at 40, you should get this. And if you pump it at 60, you should get that. So we told people, stay with the design pressure. Stay with the design pressure of a solid bore nozzle. It's what John John Freeman came up with it back in the 1800s, okay? Mm-hmm. Why is it we're looking to change things now? So here's what we did. We under-pumped the nozzle by 10 PSI. We put one kink in the hose line. We eliminated 25% of the volume.
0: So now instead of getting 160 gallons or 100 around 160 at a 7 ace tip, right? year. You know,
1: when we under it to 40, we were, we were down, once again, depending on your hose and your nozzle, sure. we were down about 140. And then when we put the kink in it, it went down even more. Mm. That's your safety. That's your efficiency. Yeah. So that's why we talk about you take as much water into battle with you as you can for your
0: safety and your efficiency to kill the fire. Don't play with it. And people do like to talk about nozzle reaction all the time. And I think what I remember is the nozzle reaction – for a 15, 16-inch tip flowing about 185 gallons a minute, I believe is around 68 pounds. You got it. You got it. And 7-8 yeah. tip is not much less than that. I think it's uh, around 60. It might be just in the <laughs> high 50s. but
1: Tom, this reverts back to what you were talking about earlier. Train regularly with your equipment. Yeah. Pull that line out every night that you have a meeting. Pull that line out let everybody go through it. Flow it, flow it, flow it. There you go. It's that simple.
0: So one of the other common problems people tell me about that they experience with the inch and three quarter with the fifteen 16th at 50 PSI is it has a tendency to kink right behind the nozzle. Have you seen that or is that an easy? Sure. Yeah. Sure.
1: You know why? It's very simple. You have a mismatched hose system. You have a hose that's probably used with a 100 PSI nozzle. But now that you have a 50 PSI nozzle, you know what's happening? It's starting to rear back on you. So that's the whole thing that we talk about, the system approach. In fact, I think I talked about that when I was doing the brass tacks and hard facts videos. And that is there's four things to make a fire stream. You have to have the source. You have to have the pump. You have to have the hose. And you have to have the nozzle. They all have to match. In other words, your source has to get water volume into the pump your pump needs to be pumped at the right pressure your hose has got to match your nozzle and that's what happened i think with a lot of departments their their mind and their heart was in the right uh in the right place about we need to go to a low pressure system but instead of going out and getting the low pressure hose to match the low pressure nozzle they figure we'll just put this nozzle on the end of the hose and that'll be it we'll be good And it doesn't work like that.
0: Right. So,
1: and that's what's happened in a lot of cases. Yeah. So it just, yeah, comes back at the guy. You get that kink right behind, that's a scary thing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Exactly. And of course, you have departments that are not understanding low pressure. Look, 50 PSI is 50 PSI, like I said before. Don't tell somebody you want to go to a low pressure system and then tell them they can over pump it. What you've done, you've just thrown a hook at your guys. Now they get confused.
0: Yeah, you see that advertised a lot. I shouldn't say advertised, but you you read about it a lot that that's an advantage of that line. Another advantage.
1: (laughs) It was a design of of 50 psi back then. It should still be that today.
0: And I think if if you're using. uh, If you're using uh, low-pressure nozzles, I think a training topic we need to continuously harp on, especially with newer members, is everyone's in charge of watching for kinks because they can kink because it's a lower-pressure system. So, they can kink a little bit easier than the old high-pressure fog systems, correct?
1: To some extent, yes. But see, here again, that's why you have a hose that's now manufactured for lower operating pressures. And that, I, I don't see too many. In fact, you know I, what I've seen? The hose that we have go with us. We've got a manufacturer out there that sends hose with us because, number one, we know their product works so well for us. And we know what it's going to supply You know, through the nozzle or, or let the nozzle discharge. When it comes to kinks, it's pretty much removing the kinks itself. It's it's impressive to see this hose, you know, when you lay it out and yeah. the kinks just pop right out of it because
0: it's a low pressure hose. Right. What what are they? What's the what's the great thing that they discovered about hose manufacturing? that's made it so much better. Is it just the material it's made out of? Probably
1: probably that the. Uh, well, let's let's take a look uh, when when John Freeman was doing his work which continued into the 1900s, and you had Shepard, you know, doing his work with hydraulics also. All the fire service had was rubber lined hose. Most of the rubber lining came from 30 miles down the street from where I live, Akron, Ohio. You know, all the rubber mills were making rubber tubes, and that was used for fire hose. Fire hose had double jacketed, probably cotton jacket and things like that. Sure, so you had to dry it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, all this was the way it was back then. And that's uh, the whole thing about when you had that kind of hose, you had pretty much standard uh, formulas to figure friction loss. Okay. As time has gone on, and I remember I was, oh God, this is going to be early 2000s at FDIC. I was talking with a couple of the manufacturers at their booth while going um, through the uh the floor over there you know talking to the manufacturers about friction loss formulas and they said everyone said the same thing throw them out everything's changing okay the materials are changing outer jackets are changing and things like that but the one guy wised me up he said you know what we've given the firefighters everything they've wanted from a manufacturer standpoint, if they come to us and say, we want hose that'll expand and carry more water, we come up with it. And we want hose with lighter weight coupling. So we went from brass to aluminum. And that was a long, long time ago. Again, you know, all these changes have taken, taken place and we've gotten them. So when you see these things coming online now, look, we have a history that we should know about, you know, where we were and where we are now. Mm -hmm. So having people understand hydraulics and, again, the changing fire load, that all blends into this, okay? The changing fire load requires more water for us to deliver onto a fire. You're in a hallway. You've got fire roaring down the hallway at you, okay? Well, you sure as hell don't want to have a little bit of water, do you? You don't have to prove anything to anybody how tough you are. What you have to do is that you want to kill that fire so you can take control and keep, continue to move forward if you can. Right. All right. So we've seen hose manufactured now that gives us higher volumes of water at lower pressures. And that's the whole thing about the uh, the system approach to, uh, you know. Kill the fire.
0: Right. Kill the fire, which on our first episode talking about engine company operations, I said that's the goal. Kill the fire. You know, you mentioned a few names there, Fornell and the others, and or, I mean um Lane and the it, others. My is favorite. one name we you throw out there. Yeah, well, that's my favorite book. When I was a young officer, his book, yeah. Fire Stream Management, got placed into my hands. And that book did so much to educate me about engine ops and nozzles and hose yeah. and basics. And and unfortunately, it was in our fire department library for years, and it's gone. And yeah. I went online to try and buy my own copy, and you can't find it anywhere. So if anyone's yeah. listening out there and has a <laughs> copy of David Fornell's book, Fire Stream Management, let me know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good book.
1: For and how. That was yes. a good book. Yeah. Yeah, Well, see, that's that's the thing. I, I, I met him at FDIC when FDIC was in Cincinnati, Cincinnati, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, we had a great conversation. He was with a couple of people I knew. And uh, by the way, the one person I was with was from up your way many, many, many years ago. And this is a gentleman who designed the turbojet nozzle, and that was a Parker Brown. I'll throw his name out there. He was from Brockport. Okay. And he went into the service as a firefighter in the Air Force, I think it was, came home, got his engineering degree from University of Maryland Fire Service Engineering Program, and in the 60s went with Brass, and the turbojet nozzle was his baby. And you know, he was one of those guys you could just sit down and listen to him for hours at a time. And it's just tr- tremendous so forth.
0: So so he was pals with Fernell. Yeah. And uh so man, you know, out there. yeah, that's cool. There's there's so much to know and appreciate. You know, it's more, you know, if you're a, a driver and a pump operator, so much more than just pushing a button. You know, all of this has evolved over time. And it's funny because some things change and then we go back just like you were talking about. And But there's a history there that we should know and appreciate and you know, really understand. You see,
1: here again, when are we going to stand up for our triple combination engines? And then the other thing is what you just said about pushing the button. That's not hydraulics. What we did in Cleveland years ago, many years ago, we got a first batch of engines. We had 12 engines come in with the push-button pumps. He got rid of them. Really? Went to the throttles, the old throttles. Better control.
0: Mm. Absolutely. I remember the old relief valve where you had to oh, set yeah. the relief valve. Sure. And all. Yeah. Yeah. Does yeah. all the thinking for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. of course. Yeah, of course it does. Until you get something that's not so normal, right? It's great (laughs) for the everyday operation, but then sometimes a hiccup comes out. And now, what do I do? Give an example. You know, your
1: your area and my area, we're noted for our warm weather in the wintertime. Yes, we are. (laughs) And so, do you guys carry your pumps dry in the wintertime? No. Some departments do. Okay. And when you have a full, when you have 30 days of below freezing weather, uh, sometimes you'll carry your pumps dry. Well, that was when we found out that the computers are going to screw you over. And that was, we responded to a car fire one night and uh, we pull up and got a fire going in the uh, passenger compartment in wintertime. You know, it's probably about 10, 15 degrees out there, you know. And the guy stretched the line. I'm watching. I was running the show, looking, watching everybody. Pump operator. He says, I can't get it to go into pumps. I says, what? I said, well, just go through the steps, you know, like we were normally taught to do. You start it all over. And get it to go into pumps. This guy's car, that was a ball of fire. Here, what it, the pump was reading cavitation because we were carrying the pumps dry. And usually, you know, when a guy we pull up, you go into pump,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you go out, you drop the tank and fill your line with water. Yeah, the water's there. Yeah, the water's there. It's just that simple. Because it was reading it as he was in the cab switching from road to pump, it wouldn't allow it to go into pump. So he came over here and it was like, what the hell's going on here? And that's when we were made aware of the computers and how they'll work against you. Mm. And yeah. So, Oh man. Yeah. Here we're trying to avoid a frozen pump or frozen outlets right. and, uh, causing yeah. other issues. <laughs> and the guy's got yeah. burned up. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's all. Good. Yeah. It was up in the trees at that time. So. Oh my God. Oh, <laughs> so. God. Oh, well, I think we, uh, we've had another good show, my friend, a lot of good information. Yeah, you know, if if nothing else, hopefully we can get other brothers and sisters out there like our brother in in Wisconsin to really build that engine company culture. And hopefully we gave them some ideas for training drills and things they can do back home. We
1: were fortunate. I got to go back to South Dakota for you. So this is our second time out there. Last year, we went out there and we were doing the engine class first time out there in South Dakota. And one of our team members, Jerry Knapp, had been out there for his gas class,
0: which is phenomenal. Jerry was a guest yeah. on my show last year talking about his class. Yep. yep, good material.
1: For for those of you who know Jerry Knapp, he's a member of us with Strategic Fire Training, and Jerry was in a natural gas explosion several years ago, and it really and had an impact. Died. Yeah, had a real impact on him, and he's written a book. And like Tom, you know, you said. Uh, Yeah, he's got a great book out there and a great presentation. So Jerry was out there doing his presentation. He said, hey, you know what? You know, and the rest of our group, you know, we'd love to come out and do an engine class for you. And we went out last year. They brought us out. So we had a great time. And it just so happened, this is how networking is. There is a volunteer out in one of the departments in South Dakota. His name was Rick George. I know he wouldn't mind me, you know, passing his name on He enjoyed our class that much. And he says, we got to get you guys back. We got to get you guys back. Talking to him, he started out in New York State.
0: Wow. Another transplant from New York. They're all (laughs) over.
1: Yes. uh, He was a volley in New York State. Ended up going out there to South Dakota for business and work and things like that. Family, whatever. And now he's on the board for the South Dakota State Firefighters Association. And it was great As we have all this stuff going the other day, you know, we got this going, we got the deck gun flowing, all this, and we got guys moving hose lines into this structure and so forth. And to turn around and see him right there, hey, so glad to see, oh, man, he says, this is just beautiful. This is what we need. And I thought, thank you, Rick, for your
0: backing. And that's the way it happens. Yeah. So many cases, you know. And I bet you send a lot of students home really passionate for engine company operations. Not just passionate for it, but much more knowledgeable about it. And that's the kudos to you and your crew and and your message. It's a great message.
1: Well, thank you. And it's I, I, I pass it on down. Okay, to the guys who work with me,
0: you know, we have a great time together. We owe it to our communities, we owe it to our residents. When they have a fire, they expect us to put water on that fire and know what we're doing, right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, Yeah. a couple of things before we end up here. Yeah,
1: uh, number one, as you said, we started off, we talked about the officer's position when we were out there, we talked about the company concept and the engine's job, we talked about different fire departments coming together through mutual aid or automatic aid, and then working together, stretching the hose lines, like one crew is doing this, one crew is doing that and so forth, but everybody's accountable for. So it, it really was a good time with these guys because they were all into it.
0: That's you know? fantastic.
1: We, Yeah. We were going right through the whole day, eight yeah. o'clock till four thirty or five wow. or whatever it was. So, so also, also I uh, forgot to mention earlier that we'll be in, Actually, two locations. We're going to be in uh, Oregon and uh, Scapoose and uh, Scapoose Fire District. Uh, we were up there using the uh, uh, Columbia River Fire District Training Center in the past. And boy, is it a, a beauty. We're going to be up there again. That'll be the end of August. Okay. But in September, uh, we're going to Old Forge, New York. And that's a beautiful place up in the uh, Finger Lakes region. And that'll be through FASTE, Firefighters Association, State of New York. And uh, we look forward to having a
0: great time up there with all those who attend. And that's about it. For and now. I will be there as well doing yes. a presentation. And it's one of my favorite places. And we have uh, uh, my brother-in-law has a nice family compound up there. And I'm looking forward to going up there. So see you in Old Forge.
1: Excellent. All right. Excellent. We will.
0: Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. You know, if people wanted to reach out to you, Jeff, to talk more about this, to bring you out to do some training, have questions, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Did we give my number out the last time? I think we did. Yep, you did. Okay. I was going to put it at the end of the show in case we have new listeners. So whatever you need to give, your email, your number. Okay. Well, email is hjs0552
1: at gmail.com. And if you feel like giving me a call, 216 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470
0: -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 -470 470 4117. Fantastic. Folks, yeah. reach, reach out to them, a lot of great information. Um this has been a great series, three parts so far. Yeah. I yeah. know uh, we could probably cover even more. I know we just hit on some of the very basics about commercial building fires and things. So reach out to Jeff if you have more yeah. questions and need help maybe putting a playbook together, yeah. SOP, SOG, training template together. I know you'd be happy to help people out. So Yeah. Well, thank you okay. so much uh, for joining me yet again. Yep. And I hope to have you again soon. And uh, I, I really appreciate it. And for anyone listening that wants to get a hold of me, again, it's TA Merrill63 at AOL.com. That's Merrill, is M-E-R-R-I-L-L-T-A, Merrill63 at AOL.com. You can check out the Professional Volunteer Fire Department Facebook page and give it a like. I'm always posting information and articles on there and words of wisdom and inspiration and things like that. Um, my book will be out soon, the Professional Volunteer Fire Department. It's uh, It's almost in the print stage. I keep talking about it. It is going to happen this year. I am very excited about that. And my next show will be scheduled for Tuesday, August 22nd. So thank you again to everybody for tuning in. I ask you to please stay safe. Build that engine company culture back home because I'm pretty sure you have a fire engine in your apparatus, bay. Eh? And remember, true professionalism is defined not by a paycheck. And your residents are owed a professional level of service delivered by professional firefighters representing a professional organization. Take care, folks. Yeah.